Colorado has this bizarre, and I think very ineffective, way of appointing and retaining judges. Former Colorado Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Love Corliss thinks this is a better way of doing it compared to most others. I talked to her about ways to reform the system. This is the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that program by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV. That stands for Independence Institute Television. Or just go to thinkfreedom.org. This is a fascinating discussion. been wanting to do this one for a long time because when I go to court, I never know what the bribe is. Rebecca Love Corliss, who served for 11 years on the Supreme Court, can answer that question. It used to be 100 bucks flat fee. You just slide it across the table. <laughs> what is it at the Supreme Court these days? Oh, John. I will, however, tell you a story, which is that I went to court in Nevada once as a anonymous spectator. It was in a, a time when Nevada was considering moving from elected judges to appointed judges, which mm -hmm. I know is, is one of your hot button issues. Sitting in the back of the courtroom and a man walked in with his client who turned to him and said, have you made your campaign donation yet? Because if you haven't, the judge won't listen to you. <laughs> Kind of like that. Yeah, well, it's I very don't. <laughs> so, Rebecca, you've you've been on the Colorado Supreme Court for eleven years. Before that, you were a trial court judge. A trial court judge. After that, you put together an organization at DU, which looked at reforming the the how we do civil cases. After that, and what you do now is work on promoting new ways to solve civil cases that cost people a lot less. So I, I've got a lot of stuff I really want to talk to you about. Go for it. All right. I want to focus in on how Colorado does cases, particularly political cases. I'm talking about the Supreme Court part of this. And we have something called, um, uh, we retain judges. And we have a way to look at judges and we retain judges with a popular vote. So. They're, they're appointed, and then uh, two years later, we get to look at them, and we give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down. I'm not wild about this system because it doesn't seem like we kick too many of them out. When you get to the top level, the Colorado Supreme Court, you, you go in for two years, you get a thumbs up or thumbs down from voters, and then every 10 years after, there's a review process, and so there's this, this committee that looks at all the judges and makes a, a determination if voters should approve them or not. They all are recommended for approval. And so I go through the blue book, and it's like the, remind me of the name of the committee? Judicial Performance, Performance Evaluation Commission. Commission. Yep. And they all go, this guy's great, you should, we recommend you keep him in office. This guy's great, you ought to keep him in office. This gal's great, you ought to keep him in office. And rarely do I ever see somebody go, this judge really sucks. We recommend <laughs> you kick him out of office. Never seen that. And overwhelmingly, they all get about 65, 70, 75, 80% vote to retain. Last year was the first time I saw somebody get kicked out, and that was a specialized judge. So I keep an eye on this. And overwhelmingly, they all stay in office. This doesn't seem to be a great accountability uh, way to, to review our judges. 
Okay, so like you have so many things I want to address in so what you talk, just said. Yeah, talk, but talk about it. Is let me, it. Can I start out yeah, with how ahead. judges are selected? Yeah, let's talk because about that that's, first. that's an important part of the process. There are nominating commissions. There's one in each judicial district, and then there is a, an appellate nominating commission that has jurisdiction over the Court of Appeals and the Supreme Court. Those how, people, many, how many districts do we have now? We have 22. I think we'll we're, have 23 adding, adding another uh, one. when we add the, the, the additional Douglas right. County amalgam. Um, those people are appointed by diverse appointing authorities. They are not uh, appointed by just the chief justice or the governor or the speaker of the House or president of the Senate. It's an amalgam. And they serve terms. They're supposed to be politically balanced. So the nominating commissions themselves are a body that, in theory, should be representative and should be a good filter for purposes of assessing whether a judge will be a good or whether an applicant will be a good judge. So we have 22 of those working in each judicial district. They receive applications when there's a vacancy. They figure out what information they want. They do their own inquiry and outreach. They hold interviews with the ones that they want to talk to. And they then cull it down to three people, usually. Those committees are still appointed by people in the legislature. Various nominating authorities, I mean, various appointing authorities. So the governor, the chief justice, and um, the, the legislature in some amalgam. And so, for instance, right now, when we have what I will say, a very left-leaning governor, a very progressive uh, state legislature, um, and I would say pretty progressive uh, Supreme Court, we're going to get more progressive judges. So I I. My terminology. You're, yeah, you're, you're making a couple of leaps that I wouldn't necessarily make, but I do think, to your point, there are more Dems on nominating commissions right now than there are ours, and that's a problem from my view. It would be a problem if it were the other way as well. So these nominating commissions are supposed to be the line of first defense to figure out who would be a good judge in their community or at the state level, in the, at the Court of Appeals or Supreme Court level, they then feed their three names to the governor, who then has discretion to choose among those three. There's a very, very obscure way that the governor can bounce it back and say, I don't like any of these three, but it's very obscure. Other states are not like that. Other states have the capacity vested in the governor to say, nah, I don't like any of these, try again. That's not Colorado. So out of that comes then the judge who is seated, or justice, if it's on the Supreme Court. And you're right, they serve a provisional term of two to three years, depending upon when the next general election is, vis-a-vis -vis when they were appointed. At that point, they get their first judicial performance evaluation. And it's not just a bunch of people sitting in a room. There actually is a pretty robust survey process for people who've appeared before that judge, be they lawyers, jurors, uh, or individual litigants. The problem with that system has been the response rates. And that's what the states that are working on improving judicial performance evaluation really focus on, is trying to increase the response rate so they have legitimate information about whether the judge is doing a good job. 
caveat here, what those people are looking at and trying to evaluate is fundamentally fairness, efficiency, case management skills, respectfulness. They're not trying That's to not evaluate ideology. political bias. No, right. they're not. They are not. There's not a when you, yeah, when you grid look at those, for that. I, I look at that and was, was the judge nice? Did he move the case along quickly? Did he fill out the forms well? Um, no, no. It's was he or she prepared, right? Did they actually read all the stuff? Did they Were they um, ready to decide the issues? Did they hear all the evidence? Did they... Um, express bias? Did they come into it with a bias pro-prosecution, for example, or pro-defense? I mean, those are the things that can be evaluated. Evaluating ideology, I would suggest to you, is a much, much grayer area. And hard to do. It's not like when you look at the state legislature, you have everybody voting on the same bill. Right. So if if an environmental group or a taxpayer group or a pro-gun group or an anti-gun group gets to look at everybody, they can say, we want everyone to vote yes or no, and we get to look at all the legislators and how they voted. A judge looks at every case every time, and those cases are all different. So it, it's a lot harder to evaluate. It's, it's a I, lot harder. I will, I will grant it. Which is one of the reasons why... I have always been worried about using sentencing data as part of the analysis because judges don't decide who's going to come before them. You know, they sentence whomever is up and they have a probation report in front of them which makes recommendations. They have the arguments from the defense, from the prosecution, and they come up with a decision which taken out of context completely may seem egregious on either side of the ledger. So I worry a little bit about that and it's used as kind of a, um, a benchmark for ideology because people can't figure out a different way to do it. But anyway, to come full circle back, that survey data is available on the Judicial Performance Evaluation Commission website. You can look at the narrative which is the commission's, you know, attaboy, or I wish you did this better. But you can click back into the well, actual well, data. To, to get to the punchline and save some of the time, it seems as though the Lake Wobegon factor happens. <laughs> and my God, everybody there is above average. They're, everybody's wonderful. And I know I've heard it from judges well, you know, the bad judges, they know they're, they're, they just don't go up for re-election, they quit. That's really nice. But it seems to me that in every election, you got a winner and a loser uh, uh, in contested races, but here, everybody's a winner, and everybody gets 70% approval rating. It just doesn't seem like a very effective way to, to engage with voters to have some sort of accountability onto these judges. Nobody knows who they are. None of these judges ever have to worry about it. None of them are out campaigning to say, here's why I've been a good judge. Here's why I've put bad guys in jail. Here's why I've, I've been um, uh, reading the laws right. They don't seem to have to defend their work. So two responses to that. The first is, to some extent, I hear you. I realize that those narratives can come across as bland and sort of universally positive. Um, if you look 
further out, once the judge has had more than two or three years on the bench, I would suggest to you that isn't necessarily the case, that as people develop more experience with the judge, that they're not as uniformly positive if there's somebody that is not a great judge. So that's one caveat. The Although other I have looked back year after year after year, and I've only found maybe two in the last eight years that had a negative review. Have you ever looked at the numbers of members of the commission who vote for or against, or the percentages of attorney approval? No, no, I've looked at the Blue Book recommendations, just so, like any normal voter yeah. who only has X amount of time in their life. I think I've done more due diligence than 99.9% .9 of voters. Yeah, and I'm sure you're right. I Because you care, and because you would analyze the information through a particular level of experience. Next time, take a couple of judges and drill down and see if that gives you any more comfort. Because part of what you may be saying is that the ultimate narrative that ends up on in the blue book or on the voter's first blush of the website is not sufficiently reflective. But, but to, to speed along a little bit, if 99.999% of the reviews are the, the review panel says, vote this guy in again. And in fact, 99.999% of them do get voted back in by overwhelming numbers. Then how is this at all an effective way to retain judges? So to, to cut to the chase from my perspective as well, it's, a, it's Churchillian in the sense of democracy is a terrible form of government, but it's better than all the others. I've looked at every judicial selection system in the United States from sort of an empirical and academic perspective, and I would suggest to you that this is head and shoulders above electing judges, because if you elect them, axiomatically you get partisan judges who are beholden somewhere. I will agree with you on that. I've looked at it as well. I worry about electing judges and that they are for, you know, that that but becomes for problem. sale, they're which for is sale. what you started to say. <laughs> for sale. Ugly concept. It but. is an ugly concept. But what I thought you might say was, this is the best system. And to my read, this is not a system at all. That 99.99% of all the judges who are put up for retention are retained. It's just a waste of paper, a waste of review. There has got to be a better way to have some sort of accountability. Is it term limits for judges? Is it some sort of R or D behind their name just so you have some sense perhaps of their ideological leaning? Is there, is there some sort of um, uh, other type of evaluation where you get a sense if they are somebody who is an originalist like Scalia or somebody who is much more, more like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that would help me looking at these people because then I would get a sense as to where they are as the type of judge they are. But, you know, knowing that other, other lawyers go, you know, oh, he's proficient, you know, it gives me nothing. It, so in your experience looking at all these, is there a better system you like? First of all, let me say I don't think it's perfect. I would, I would never take the position that the Colorado system has no way to improve, because I don't believe that. 
I do believe that some version of performance evaluation is the right tool. And I don't, by the way, disagree with term limits at any level. I think really? that may be something that needs to be looked at um, because there is such a thing as people staying too long in a particular job, no matter what yeah, the job I is. I you're looking at me, I get uh, it. No, I get no, it. no, I'm not no, actually looking at you, but I have other people in, in mind when I say that. So I'm not telling you that Colorado's system is perfect. <laughs> as I look around the country, there are states that do a better job of judicial performance evaluation, Utah being one of them, Arizona being another, and there are ways that we could improve What do they do differently that we should? Utah um, is, is much more robust in its data collection. So if you walk out of a courtroom where you've appeared before a judge, they're going to hand you a sheet of paper that says, did this judge do a good job? Were they, you know, do you think they were biased? What are your impressions? So it's, it's fresh in your mind, and you, a lot of people don't bother to fill it out. But the ones who do fill it out, it's, it's pretty good data. They also survey expert witnesses who appear in court, other cadres of people who might have more objective information. I think the problem that you're pointing at, however, is one that I'm not sure what the answer is, John, and that is you want to know the intellectual ideology of appellate judges. I want to know their bias. Yeah. I want to know... Yeah, I understand that a good judge will rule against my political leanings because he's looking at the law, and I might politically disagree with his ruling, but he's following the rules, that he's an umpire. He's, the, you know, he's, he's calling balls and strikes. And I might think it's a ball. He says, no, it's a strike. Um, and he might be right. I just don't like the ruling. But I, I want to know that. And I, I will look at the Colorado Supreme Court, and I'll read the law, and I'll go, that is so not a strike. The way strike. I see it. You know, the, the whole thing I mentioned to you off air of, of um, uh, saying that 120 calendar days for a session is not, is not um, can be taken any time out of order. You know, try that with your bank on paying back your, your car loan. I'm sorry, it says calendar days. I'm going to pay this calendar day and then three months later another calendar day the way the governor did when he stopped the session during COVID. You can't do that, but our Supreme Court said you can. I'll go over Tabor rulings the same way. And I'm like, that can't be done. And especially since I was around when Chris Paulson and others, and Bill Owens was on there too, put that referred measure on the ballot, and it was that was the argument. That is the way it was sold to people. That's what it was told, so that they can't do that. And so, let me ask you this question: There is a system, a data collection system, that scrapes all federal court records, and for a fee, they compile them by judge. So you can go through that system and figure out, well, my case in the federal district court is before Judge X. Judge X historically rules this way on motions to dismiss in employment cases. So I maybe shouldn't make that motion or I should make that motion. 
um, I should look at these opinions from Judge X so I can shape my argument to meet Judge X's expectations and I have a better shot at winning. Big firm litigators, corporate litigators use that data as they are shaping their case before an individual judge. Does that, do you think that's appropriate? Is that something we should be doing? If you're if your question is, should it be banned, the answer is no, because well, of course it's open. it shouldn't be banned, but do you think that that kind of use of data um, with respect to the judicial system is something that should be carried over into, for example, the state courts? Open records are open records, and sure. people can use them any way they like. Sure. So I don't know the, the question. Is it polite? Is it proper? That's moot because it is completely legal and it's open records. So people can use open records any way they like. I guess the point I'm trying to Your make Honor. is that um, predicting how a judge is going to rule is on the, you do it on the basis of his or her record, right? The cases that they've decided at the appellate level, those cases are very available. Right? So if you think somebody should be amassing that data and making an analysis, a prediction about the political ideology or biases of a particular judge, an entity can do that. So what but you're the, saying. But the state shouldn't be doing it. So what you're saying is that just like the Colorado Union of Taxpayers gathers the information on votes, we should be doing the same thing as citizen organizations gathering the, this information and making our own, own decisions. Well, and I would suggest to you that there's a, a lot of personal political outlook that will play into how you analyze those decisions. I, but would, I, would, I would come back on and say this. What you have with a government seal of approval in a blue book carries such weight, the good keeping seal of approval, where this, this committee says, um, we recommend, get rid of that. If you got rid of that. The get rid of the recommendation Get part. rid of the recommendation. The evaluation and the narrative is fine. In your view, people can take it as they wish. Well, but just they, make it say, we're Lake Wobegon. We were going to recommend everybody here, here are the statistics we have on everybody, but get rid of these recommendations, these self-serving recommendations that every judge is spectacular. There They're are useless. states that do that, by the way, with their performance Should Colorado be one of them? I don't know. Um, it begins to cause you to question um, the utility of the process itself, but I would not be opposed to removing the actual recommendation. Right. Let me give you my idea. My idea simply is that since everybody gets uh, such a high percentage that we make a supermajority vote required for retention. On the commission? No, on the ballot box. Oh. Since everybody gets 60%, why don't we raise it that you have to get 55 or 60% vote to retain your office? That is, there has to be something that shows you have some uh, more skin in the game. 
since no one seems to ever get below 60% in these races, let's make the, let's make the goalpost just a little higher. Let's make it so if you're going to kick a field goal, you got to go back a few yards to make that field goal. Because it seems as though there are judges that don't always make that 60% mark. Let's cut it off. There's something there that makes these guys a little less desirable. Let's cut them out because they're not doing it. Because voters don't do the research, but there's something wrong with these guys if they can't even get 60% of the vote and everybody else is getting 70. Well, I mean, I hear you, and that's not an outrageous suggestion for sure. My concern about it is that most people vote all yes or all no. They don't do the research to say yes, 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 no, yes, no. That's because it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. But once it's it starts circular, to matter, right? But once it starts to matter, then maybe they will. Maybe. I mean, maybe. So it's not an unreasonable suggestion. No, it's not unreasonable. All right, you heard it here first. Supreme Court Justice Corliss says it's not unreasonable. All right, um, the age restriction. Nine. Uh, you have to. Uh, Roy Romer said seventy-two, and you're out. I believe, if I remember my history right, there was a justice he didn't like, so he passed a law to get rid of him and put an age limit at 72. Is that reasonable for the Colorado Supreme Court? I'm not not going to concede that that's the way it happened because I really don't think it is. But having an age limit on the Colorado Supreme Court, um, there have been some justices who... Uh, could have served another 10 years for sure. But along the lines that we were discussing earlier, which is that um, new blood is usually a good thing, and it gives more appointing authorities an opportunity to appoint members of the court, which should achieve, as, as you view it, political balance. So I am not um, opposed to the age 72 cutoff. Um, I came nowhere close to it, and I might have felt differently if I was up against it, so to speak. Uh, But I don't think it's had a bad impact. But you do agree women shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. (laughs) I was the third woman ever to be appointed to the Colorado Supreme Court. The first being Jean Dubofsky, the oh, second right. being Mary Malarkey. And Jean had left by the time I arrived at the court. Um, so I was I was second, um, and Mary was already there. She, as you know, became Chief Justice. Um, here's, here's what you're going to have to look forward to. There are more women entering law school these days than men, so the bench is going to be... Um, populated by extraordinarily capable women ere long. And the same thing in uh, all science, including uh, medical science and doctors. Yeah. yeah. All right, but can we agree? No Italians oh. on the Supreme Court. I mean, we, we don't my husband that. is Greek, so you know, you're know you going to have to pick a different yeah. example. No, listen, you, you don't want him. <laughs> you don't want him. You've ever driven a Fiat, you don't want him on the, you don't want him on the Supreme Court. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Um, After the Supreme Court, you took a look at um, civil law, and we all spend so much money and time trying to decide who wins and who loses, all right? It is amazing. The Constitution says a right to a speedy trial. That's in criminal courts, and nobody gets a speedy trial. Nobody. 
anybody who's been through a divorce knows it can be drawn out for years and years. Court costs go skyrocketing. You can go broke just trying to get an answer for a simple question. When it gets into the civil world, particularly when business and another business decide to go at it, both businesses can go bankrupt. You've really been pushing on arbitration as a, as a way to solve this. We hear about arbitration. You sign these contracts, you, you, you click to get an app on your iPhone, and it says, parties agree to arbitration. You don't know really what that means. Um, I've heard you speak about the power of arbitration, how to do it right, how to do it wrong. Give me the quick primer. Arbitration basically means two parties are having a disagreement and they agree that somebody else is going to be the judge and therefore it can solve a lot of problems. That sounds nice. What is it? Okay. So here's the, the primer. First of all, there are kind of three different categories of arbitration. I'll give you the first category first because it is the contentious one. And that is mandatory arbitration for consumers or employees uh, who you know, have to click on their credit card um, terms statement, which right. unbeknownst to them includes a requirement that they arbitrate. That's very contentious. Congress is coming after it, has paired it in various ways. Various state legislatures have paired that back. So mandatory arbitration in a circumstance in which there is a questionable balance of power, you know, big guy, little guy. The second area of arbitration that is also not, um, not widely embraced is what's called non-binding mandatory arbitration. There are some states that have a process where if you want to file a case in court and the amount in controversy is less than $100,000, you have to go to non-binding arbitration first. And then if somebody doesn't like the outcome, they get to go to court with certain constraints on who pays based on who wanted arbitration. I'm not a fan of that. Isn't that what you have to do with divorce? As a guy who's had the pleasure. No, no. You, you, you have to do a mediation. Right. And you go, you get a mediator, and you say, all right, can we figure this out? And hopefully, then you don't have to go to court. It's, 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 the well, idea is kind of the same. but you have to agree to it, right? Right. And but it's not binding. Yeah, it's not binding. So it's similar. Except hopefully, and actually when you talk about alternative dispute resolution, which is now what I do, that includes mediation. And I actually do mediation in complex civil cases as well as arbitration. And the, the premise, the difference between arbitration and mediation, in mediation you have to agree. You're not going to walk out with Got a it. settlement unless you agree. Arbitration, on the other hand, as you point out, is you assigning the decision-making to somebody else. Necessarily, you're not going to agree all the way um, because you have given the decision to somebody else. You're not owning it yourself. So commercial arbitration, which is what we do and which I think is such a legitimate alternative for commercial disputes, is business people 
saying to one another back in the honeymoon period when they're entering into the agreement, if we ever have a controversy, we're going to have it arbitrated. We're not going to go to court. We're not going to spend all that money. We're going to arbitrate it. So it is voluntary arbitration, not mandatory arbitration. And it is largely between business people who believe that that process is better for them. Okay? Got it. So now do you want me to walk you through a little bit of how the process works? No, I, I have a question okay. here. Because I can understand when parties just don't want to do this. So I click something on, on the computer, and now it's some big company. In order to get the credit card, I have to agree to binding arbitration. I don't know what it is. The company's got, uh, seems to have all the power. I don't. And it seems like they've got an advantage in arbitration. Do they really? I mean, I hope not because of the way that the process works and because the alternative is um, you got billed $62 in late fees that you didn't right. really owe. Uh, if you had to take that to county court or to some other court, I mean, you know, the cost that that would require for you, even if they ultimately had to pay for it, and the time expenditure. Whereas if you have an arbitration process, which a lot of those companies do, that you just click into, and it's not that the same judge is going to arbitrate all of those. I've done a few of them, and there is a selection process, which we can come back to if you're interested, for who's going to be the arbitrator in that case. But it's going to be quick. It's going to be determinative. You get your 62 bucks back and your filing fee if you had to file an arbitration claim. Happens in 30 days, you're done. So there are real advantages. What about this situation? Um, woman gets sexually harassed at work, but in part of her employment contract, it says it goes to arbitration. And the reason is then it's kept quiet. And part of it is that it's a closed-door thing, it's not a big trial, and maybe she wins and she gets a, a hunk of money, but a lot of it is to keep it quiet. Whereas if she went to trial, then there might be cameras, there might be more publicity, and all of a sudden, all the other people who have been sexually harassed by this person or people in the company, they see it and go, wait a second, that's me too. And I happen, and then before you know it, it's um, uh, Harvey Weinstein. And then it goes on. And Harvey Weinstein doesn't want this, so he wants it all to go to arbitration, doesn't he? Is there something about arbitration that's there to keep people quiet? Congress has addressed that example, and it no longer is legal to require a complainant who has a sexual harassment or sex, sexual abuse claim to go to arbitration as of 2022. So those claims, you're right, those claims are now in the open forum. You can't keep that confidential. And there is a movement toward um, a similar approach to employment claims more broadly, uh, not just sexual harassment or um, sexual abuse within the context of employment, but employment more broadly. So both state legislatures, and there's a preemption question as to when the federal law governs and when the state law governs, but both state legislatures and Congress are confining arbitration. 
to cases where they think people are making free decisions. Um, because you're absolutely right that one of the advantages to arbitration is you can keep your intellectual property or your corporate documents confidential. They don't end up on the, the courts, in the court's data bank. They're not publicly accessible. So it's one of the real advantages of arbitration. How does somebody choose the arbitrator? It sure seems to me like, I'll choose, I'll go to arbitration because my buddy Hank. Is an he, arbitrator. Arbi Are you an arbitrator? I am. All right. Oh, I, I know Rebecca. She, she's my kind of arbitrator. Yeah, I'll agree as long as she does it. I would imagine... Sounding a little bit like the conversation we just had, huh? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'll walk you through how that happens. Yeah. I'm going to use as my example the American Arbitration Association, AAA, not the kind that fixes your flat uh, no, tire. No, uh, uh, they help me get sober. <laughs> right. right. No, no, not that one either. Right. Uh, so the American Arbitration Association, which has a panel of arbitrators across the country. If you were to file an arbitration claim before AAA in Denver, for example, on a business contract that you had entered into that went sideways and right. it's going to have to be arbitrated, what would happen is that there would be a case manager assigned at AAA, and he or she would tee up to you and your adversary a list of prospective arbitrators. And each of you would winnow that list until you end up with somebody that is acceptable to both of you. Once you end up in that posture, the prospective arbitrator has to do a whole lot of disclosures. I know, John. He interviewed me, and right. I really shouldn't be an arbitrator in his case. Or, you know, I've okay. done business with so-and-so, or so-and-so's kid goes to school with my kid. That kind of thing is absolutely relevant to the decision-making process. Now, one other fill-up there is that you can have a case with one arbitrator or a case with three. That's usually built into your clause where you choose arbitration in the first instance. You know, I'm, I want this arbitrated before AAA with one arbitrator or three arbitrators. If it is not chosen in the language of the contract, then the AAA rules would apply, and it depends on the amount in controversy. If it's a larger amount, you're likely to get three. Now, one other little footnote here. There are circumstances where you have party arbitrators, where each party will choose a, an admittedly biased or aligned arbitrator, and then those two people choose a third. That's not usually the case. If you have a panel of three, usually you have three impartial arbitrators. Why do I want an arbitrator instead of just going to a judge? First of all, it's a lot faster. Uh, the data from AAA suggests, and the American Bar Association actually, suggests that you can get your case decided in an average of seven months. Two, seven months seems like a really long time. Yeah, and compare it to three or four years in court, potentially, right? Oof. Yeah. All right. A lot cheaper. Discovery is focused and not unlimited by any means. Depositions, sometimes yes, people sometimes don't know, no. Discovery means fact-finding. Exactly. And so a lot of times I in cases- I want all your emails. Right, and when discovery gets nasty, it's, it's uh, I want to 
depose everybody in your company because it's going to cost you a lot of exactly. money. That, and then I want to see every email. I want to see every receipt. I want to know who you met with, what you said, what you had for lunch. And it's going to drain you of money. Exactly. And in exchange, you're going to do the same to me. Uh, so does an arbitrator get to limit that discovery Absolutely. as well? Absolutely. But a judge can do the same. They just don't do it as much, right? Yeah. And arbitrators really are... The, the whole premise of an arbitration process is that it is efficient. One of the reasons you choose it is because it's efficient and less costly. So the arbitrators have an incentive, a sort of mission statement that they're supposed to keep the case efficient, keep it moving along. Additionally, the arbitrator will likely be very available to you and your attorney, not on an ex parte basis, but if you have a dispute, you've got a motion that you're ex parte? considering, you can't do it one-on-one, -on -one. like you and your attorney couldn't call me up and say, okay, yeah, Becky, we've I'm got the, up. yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, no, all this right. all happens um, in the open, but if I have a pending arbitration and there's an issue, the attorneys and or their clients as well, not or, but the attorneys with their clients or without their clients can just email me and say, can we have a call? Can we have a conference call tomorrow morning? And I'm likely to say yes. So I'm responsive, I'm available. Hopefully I can help them work through this issue. And even more to the point, the process is flexible in arbitration. So if, for example, there's one issue that needs to be resolved, and depending on which way that issue goes, maybe the whole rest of the case goes away, you can figure out a way to resolve that first. It's not like we've got to get back to court, we've got to find a court date, we've got to do this, we've got to do that. Here's a motion, here's a counter motion, here's yeah. a counter motion, here's the counter motion to the counter motion. Right. So that's those are some of the pros. So it's more informal. More informal. So you as the judge, the arbitrator, you go, all right, guys, let's let's get down to the bottom of this. You want this, you want this. Is this really the issue? All right, then let's get down, let's get down to That's this exactly issue. Exactly what a good arbitrator does. All right. And Why do I have this nasty feeling though? It feels a little like an HMO. You know, it's like, all right, we're gonna save you a lot of money here. <laughs> you know, we're gonna do it all in-house, it's gonna be great. Um, but in exchange. You won't be able to sue me. You won't be able to do that. Can I still? There's, there's the, yeah, can absolutely. You, can I still there's go, the other I shoe. hate this, and so I'm going to appeal this ruling. Can you still appeal it? Under very limited circumstances. If there is evident partiality, fraud, if I'm, you know, all of a sudden evident it turns out. Evident partiality? Do you people would, ever speak in English? <laughs> If you can prove that I was unfair, then yes, you can appeal it. Or if I decided an issue that was not properly before me. So you submitted to me these three or four issues relating to your partnership dissolution, and I went outside and, and I said, and yeah, and there's this other issue too about tax about liability or... And no, no. So if the arbitrator is unfair, and you can prove that he or she was unfair, like if he or she was calling up John and his lawyer would say, what do you think of this? I really think you should do this this way. No, that would be appealable. But if the ultimate award... So it is an HMO. <laughs> no, 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 no. If the ultimate award is within the bounds of what was submitted to the arbitrator and there's no evidence of fraud or misconduct, it is not appealable. Okay. 
And that's where you... And that's the other shoe. And it's a good thing and a bad thing. Because if you lose, you're done. On the other hand, if you win, you're not in court for the next five years trying to support the ruling below. So are more companies, because this sounds like something more companies are doing more so than individuals. Yes. Is, yeah. it, is, it, is it catching on? Arbitration has been around for almost 100 years. The, actually, maybe even before that, but the Federal Arbitration Act was enacted in 1925. So it's almost at a 100-year anniversary. And at the point at which it was enacted, it was because the courts were unfavorable to arbitration. The courts were saying, no, 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 we want you here. This is, this is our stuff. These, these are the, the our usual issues. Usual empire building by government. We like doing this. So We don't like FedEx and uh, doing the mail. We like doing the mail. So the Federal Arbitration Act was put in place. Then there were decades of, um, there was decades of litigation on what is, what does this cover? What doesn't it cover? What's the federal preemption? What can states do differently? Over time, the courts have become very supportive of arbitration and have issued rulings that say, no, no, you decided you were going to arbitrate this you got to arbitrate it. You don't get to change your mind because you think you might lose. That's, that's not okay. You stick with your contractual agreement to arbitrate. So most of the court cases are supportive of arbitration. And I think accordingly, a lot of businesses are indeed embracing it if they think that it benefits their objective, if they think that this is the way they want to resolve disputes. As I say, there are some very controversial areas, one of which is waiver of class action. In circumstances in which arbitration contracts waive class actions, so say an employment contract, and there is a waiver of the right to file a class action, what has happened is that there are filings of mass arbitrations. So there are 11 zillion consumers who are inappropriately charged a $62 late right. fee. There are 11 zillion arbitrations filed nationwide, individual mass arbitrations. So the AAA has tried to wrap its head around that by reducing fees for filing and figuring out ways to But there's no way to pull together them all together and do one big arbitration. Because of the waiver of class actions. So is that something you think very contentious. Cong Congress is going to address sometimes? Yes, oh, absolutely. If, I mean, that, that would there be are a lot of... That would be a huge saver for consumers because instead of waiting five years for your $25 coupon for whatever you get after your class action, you'd only have to wait seven months. Yeah, right. And but, still get your puny little thing. Right. But there, there are a lot of people who feel that that is inappropriate. Um, the California Supreme Court fairly recently has said that you can't waive what's known as private attorneys general cases. So if that were a case where the California Attorney General's office might have been able to sue your credit card holder because they were, see, so there, there are little pieces that are being My chewed sandbox. out of all of this. Government loves um, its sandbox. But, there, but really the notion of what's called B2B arbitration is pretty intact because I think that everybody recognizes that that's contractual. One of the things you do, and let's leave it with this, one, one of the things you do is you really do a good job educating businesses and consumers of how to choose a good arbitrator. 
and your company, and I cannot remember its name, <laughs> but but you do a pretty good job of, of bringing Aegis. <laughs> Aegis. Rolls off the tongue. Aegis. I know, I know. <laughs> but but there, there are some do's and don'ts when you're looking to, to arbitrate. Where do people go to learn more about this? This is a little bit resonant of the conversation we had about judicial performance evaluation, but perhaps it's even more important because you get to choose. <laughs> and you don't get to choose the judge that right. your case appears, or the judge before whom your so case That's a appears. really interesting point. You don't get to choose your judge. You do have say in your arbitrator. Absolutely. So the way that it usually works is that once this group of 10 or 12 has been provided to you and your attorney, your attorney starts calling everybody that he or she knows who has arbitrated before this arbitrator and gathering information. There's some organizations that compile information about arbitrators. There are some um, prestigious organizations. You know, if you're a member of those organizations, there's a presumption that somebody is right. a good arbitrator. Internationally, you're going to love this, internationally, there's a very robust system to collect survey information. And then those arbitrators are judged on the basis of experience and efficiency. So we do not have a data collection process that I know of like that in the United States. I do know that AAA is looking at implementing a more robust system themselves so that they can give more information to their potential consumers about the kind of arbitrator that they should choose. It, it has more to do historically with Ava Securities case, and I want a judge who has had securities, securities experience, right. or I want a litigator, because not all arbitrators are former judges. There are arbitrators who have a lot of experience litigating. Um, I, the organization uh, of that we created, two litigators and me. I'm the the only former judge. And sometimes former judges are the best arbitrators, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes you just want somebody who has a lot of business experience. You want somebody who's up to speed so you don't have to spend your time exactly. bringing them up to speed. Exactly. Right. So People want to get information. Where's a good place for them to go? What's the website for you? Uh, A-E-G-I-S-A-D-R.com. Uh, One more and time. Aegis. A-E-G-I-S-A-D-R.com. Okay. I'm going to leave you with two questions completely unrelated to arbitration. What do you miss most about being on the Colorado Supreme Court? Uh, I miss the opportunity to dig really deeply into an issue, to think about it from every angle, to research it, to talk to my colleagues about it. That's, that's an incredible luxury that very few other positions in life allow, right, to think deeply about something. I miss the writing. I loved writing opinions, as bizarre as that may sound. And I miss working with law clerks. Every year you got new uh, law school graduates who well, I love how interns are called law clerks. I know, isn't that great? Yeah. But they are, I mean, they are interns, but they've finished law school. They're just doing sort of a residency uh, with the court before they go out into practice. But that was really fun because they're full of ideas. What do you miss the least being on the Colorado Supreme Court? having to convince three other people that I was right. <laughs> that got old, you know? You couldn't make a decision by yourself. Any comment about all the scandals that are going on right now in the Supreme Court? They've got 
some sex scandals. They got some transparency scandals. Um, the transparency ones um, seem to, I, I don't get it. I don't get why there isn't more transparency in the courts. So my general comment about all of that, John, would be that I am so deeply um, an advocate for and believer in our system of justice. I, I believe it is central to the way that we live. I believe that every incursion into public trust and confidence in the judiciary is a wound that has to heal before we can go on. You know, people really, really ought to believe that they're treated fairly in court. Um, so every time there is a scandal or an alleged scandal or a series of allegations about the courts, about judges, it's very hurtful. Um, it hurts the public's expectations. It makes them think, yeah, well, those, I knew that was the case, you know. They're just confirming what I already knew was true. So it's very damaging, and it makes me sad um, that it has gained such traction in a variety of places. On the other hand, I think it behooves courts to figure out how to be as accountable as they can be and be as transparent as they can be. You know, it's not all them. Um, it is truly the courts who have to live up to a standard of excellence, the, the highest standard that they can. And that's aspirational because nobody can do it, but I believe it. Is the Colorado Supreme Court doing it? I think they are, actually. I think they have taken the recent turn of events and tried to figure out how to get better at what they do and how to be more transparent. I really do believe that. Um, and I, I mean, I, it's been rough times for them. But I think that rather than sort of putting their head into the sand, they have stood up and tried to figure out what they needed to change. Rebecca, thanks. This has been just wonderful. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, John. This has been fun. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. And I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations.